the start of this year, I decided that uh, I would aim each week to do something that I hadn't done before, or maybe do it differently. I have to say that's turning out easier than I expected, but maybe not so much fun. These really are, for us as a generation, unprecedented times. Other generations before us have gone through difficult times, but I guess for us this is different than anything we've gone through before. There have been some funny stuff circulating around on social media. Uh, I guess you've seen a lot of that, just as I have, and found it very funny. Some really humorous stuff going around, but, you know, we... Uh, Humor can only take us so far, can't it? And uh, I'm sure that um, I, you know, we, we all enjoy a bit of humor, but if things get as bad as we're being told that they might get over the coming weeks and months, then we're going to need more than humor to sustain us. I know that some of you at home listening to this today are, are worried about your livelihood. Uh, some of you are worried about your health or maybe the health of a loved one. As we've heard already, quite a number of you are working in occupations that put you very much in harm's way. So more than anything, you know, more than any normal time over these coming weeks and months, we're going to be needing to encourage one another. And we're going to be needing to draw near to God, who is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in troubled times. And we're going to need the perspective that we can only get from his word. So over these weeks running up to Easter, we are looking at the events of what is called Passion Week, the last few days leading up to Jesus's execution. And I'm conscious that the events of this week are so embedded in our traditions, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Day, that we can lose sight of the fact that this is a very human story involving people just like us who are making real choices that will have a real impact on their lives and on the lives of other people. So our reading this morning is Matthew 26 from verses 1 to 16. I think that should be appearing on a PowerPoint somewhere around the middle of my chest. Is that right? Okay. So when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast that's the Passover feast. Not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. This being one of the big feasts of Israel, there were thousands of visitors in Jerusalem at this time. The crowds were very much in evidence. While Jesus was in Bethany at, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering 
this woman. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Some years ago, there was a a novel that was then made into a play called The Turn of the Screw. And that phrase is also a metaphor for the pressure that pushes people into doing something in a way that reveals what's in their hearts. And the events of Passion Week are like a turn of the screw. It's like an intensifying of the pressure that brings things to a head and propels people into doing something that they probably never imagined themselves doing. In this passage that we've just read, we see the authorities in the city plotting how they can get away with a murder. We see a woman doing something amazing that offends the disciples, but Jesus considers to be a beautiful thing with a significance that she doesn't even understand herself. And then we see one of the disciples, one of Jesus' close friends, turning against him and betraying him. People respond to the same circumstances in different ways. It can bring out the pressure, the pressure can bring out the best in us or it can bring out the worst in us. So what brought about the different responses that we see in this passage and what might we learn from that? First of all, the authorities. Who were they? What was their role in all of this? In Jerusalem at that time, there wasn't the clear separation between the religious and the civil authorities that we're accustomed to. They were part of the Roman Empire. The ruling authority was the Roman governor. At that time, that was Pontius Pilate, a, a character you'll come across within the next couple of weeks. But usually the local authorities, the local leaders were given a fairly free hand as long as they did what Rome wanted. And in fact, if they played along, then they could do quite well out of it. And these people in this story would have been doing quite well out of the system. The passage that we read specifically mentions the chief priests and the elders. So the chief priests were a group of extremely influential religious and political managers who were under the authority of the high priest. If you're picturing the high priest, think less of the Archbishop of Canterbury and more of the Ayatollah. That probably gives you a clearer picture. The elders there were the civic leaders. They were the powerful men of the city. Together they represent the establishment, the elite. The system worked in their interest and they were determined to keep it that way. To understand how they got to the point of plotting to murder Jesus, we need to just back up a little bit. The passage that we've just read begins by saying, when Jesus 
had finished saying all these things. What are the things that Matthew is referring to here? Well, essentially, this goes back to the fallout from the events that Caleb was talking about last Sunday, when Jesus created mayhem in the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and so on. And the next day when he shows up at the temple and starts teaching, then the chief priests and the elders are ready to put this upstart preacher from up north firmly in his place. They demand to know by whose authority he is doing these things. Now, to be honest, if I put myself in their shoes, their reaction is understandable. If somebody turned up here in Gateway and started chucking stuff around and criticizing what we were doing, I probably wouldn't respond too well either. Jesus isn't phased by them. He says, well, tell you what, I'll also ask you a question. And if you answer it, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So here's the question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Of course, the John he's referring to is John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus to testify that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And the people revered John as a prophet who was sent by God. Now these guys, the chief priests, they're politicians. They can spot a trap if ever they see one. And they, they know that if they say that John's authority was from God, then why wouldn't they accept his testimony concerning Jesus? But if they say that John wasn't authorized by God, then the crowd are going to turn against them. So rather than say what they really think, that Jesus is a fraud, they answer Jesus, we don't know. And what this tells us is that they are not really interested in the truth. They were only looking for evidence to confirm what they wanted to believe. Now in that respect, they are not unusual. In fact, we can all be prone to do that. When we are invested in seeing things in a certain way, it's hard to accept that we might be wrong. It's the old saying, isn't it? When the facts change, I change my mind. Actually, that is much harder than we think. And clearly these guys were not open to that possibility. So Jesus tells them that neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What is the point in answering their question if they have already made up their minds about him? So rather than engaging in pointless debate, Jesus goes on to tell them some parables. The parables are stories with a point. And the point was about them. And not just them, but about Israel as a whole and what it had become. And he says they are like a son who says yes to his father, but then doesn't do what they were asked. Or they're like tenants in a vineyard who mistreat the landlord's representatives. Or they're like guests who refuse to come to the marriage feast when they are invited. And by the time Jesus has said all these things to them, they are furious. They know the stories are about them, and they want to shut him up. But they are afraid to arrest him, because of how the crowds will react. And this exchange with the chief priests and the elders turns out to be the first in a series of what we might consider to be the equivalent of first century televised debates. Alongside the chief priests and the elders, the other main religious groups all pile in 
as well. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These Sadducees, these groups, generally speaking, don't get along together very well, but they are united in their opposition to Jesus. And they are all dying to have a pop at him. Together, these guys represent the best legal and theological minds of their day. And they come at him with carefully crafted questions designed to trap him into saying something that will get him into trouble or make him look stupid. The one about paying taxes, another one about the resurrection of the dead. Just in passing, you might care to note that Jesus makes the point that in the age to come, there will be no marriage. I don't know how you feel about that right now, but after 12 weeks in isolation together, (laughs) that might seem like not such a bad thing. One question was directed, directed at him was this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The experts in the law, it's like, you know, the, the, the law was the instructions that God had given to, uh, to Israel through Moses. And these guys spent their lives studying it, interpreting it. It's reckoned that they teased out more than 600 laws that they imposed upon the people. And it was a hotly debated subject among them, which of these laws were the most important. And Jesus cuts right through to the heart of the issue. He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets Pretty much the whole Old Testament hang on these two commandments. Loving God, loving your neighbor. You know, these are not two different things. They kind of bleed into each other. The last parable of Jesus that Matthew records is the one about the sheep and the goats. And the point of it is, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. Love for God love for your neighbor. It's not complicated, is it? But with all their rules and regulations, these guys had turned the law into such a complicated and burdensome thing for people. They had lost sight of the main thing and turned what God had intended for people's blessing into a burden that, he, that they laid on their backs. I think, you know, there's, there's maybe a message for us here. Maybe these challenging circumstances that we face present an opportunity to get back to what really matters. Love God, love our neighbor. You know, we can make the Christian life so complicated as well, can't we? Uh, So many programs to run, ministries to resource, meetings to get to. We can be so busy keeping the show on the road that we lose sight of why we're doing it and who it's for. If we make it our aim, I think, in these weeks ahead to love God and love our neighbor, then we're not going to go far wrong. Yeah? Thank you from the congregation here. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's great to hear. It's just such a joy, actually, to hear about the ways that's already happening. Uh, neighbor, you know, people setting up neighborhood, neighborhood WhatsApp groups and looking out for one another. And who knows what might come of this? And I'm just thinking, you know, what if this time of social distancing somehow in the grace of God serves to bring people closer together? 
Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? And wouldn't it be an amazing thing if it serves as something of an antidote for the, for the, the polarization and the, and, and the argumentation that's characterized so much of our society's life over these last couple of years? So anyway, back to the story. Try as they might to trip him up. Each time the authorities try to take Jesus on, they come off worse. Until in the end, we read this. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But for the authorities, dealing with Jesus has become a pressing necessity. He has challenged their power. He's made them look weak. They feel threatened by him. He has to be stopped. For them, the screw has turned. What about his disciples? Where are they at with all that's going on? These are the, remember, these are the 12 men that Jesus chose at the outset of his ministry to train them so that they could follow on after him. They had been with him now for some three and a half years. He had poured himself into them. And yet it's like all that Jesus has been saying to them hasn't quite sunk in yet. The whole, what he's been trying to tell them is that the whole temple worship system has become corrupt and is unfit for purpose. God is finished with it. He's doing a new thing, but the disciples just still don't seem to have grasped this. And as they're leaving the building, they draw his attention to it. And they say, Ooh, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus replies, he says, you see all these buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And later the disciples come to him privately and, and, and ask him, they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in answer to their question, Jesus begins to paint a picture of a time of great trouble and distress. He says, he says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places. I bet that word pestilences got your attention. This is a passage that is much loved by people who have a, an interest in what we often call the end times, the period of immediately leading up to the return of Jesus. And, and you know, it's, it's tempting to look at the turmoil that the world is in right now and think, ooh, maybe this could be it. But before we jump to that conclusion, it's important to see that in all probability, what is in view here, first and foremost, are the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman armies in AD 70. A recorded historical event. And that's when the temple was pulled down and literally not a stone left standing on another. And this was an outcome that Jesus saw coming. And he saw it with great sorrow, what the outcome would be of Israel's refusal to receive him as their true Messiah and their determination to go on looking for a Messiah who promised to live up to their expectations, to throw off the yoke of Rome and to make Israel great again. And they were set, because of this, on a collision course with Rome that would end very badly 
for them. However, in saying that, some of the things that Jesus is saying here seem to point to events in a more distant future. And I think one of the the most telling ways that Jesus describes these events is as birth pains. He says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Note the word beginning, the beginning of birth pains. As the father of three children, I know about as much as I want to know about birth pains. I know that the beginning of birth pains is usually a long way from the end of them. I know that as time goes on, the contractions, the birth pains become more frequent and more intense. And I know that once it starts, there is no way back. And in the same way, I see the outworking of this scripture being felt in every successive period of history, including our own. Now listen, it's not that God is necessarily making things happen. He's not up there saying, you know what, let's just send them another pestilence. It's rather like these things are the outcome of a human race that rejected God and of a creation that's out of whack as a result. That's the message of the Bible. And this present situation that we are living through might be part of these birth pains. Now whether it, whether it's, it becomes the final push that leads into the events that usher in the return of Jesus and God's new creation, because that's where it's leading, who knows? The question is, how are we to respond when we see these things happening? Do we all hunker down and fill the house with toilet rolls? Jesus says there's a better response. He says this, when these things begin to take place, then look up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now let's be honest, the outlook is pretty grim right now. And as Caleb said, people's heads are down, trying not to get too depressed and anxious. Honestly, Pam and I have started limiting how much news we listen to. We're not trying to bury our head in the sands. We want to stay informed. But if all we have to go on is the outlook, it's going to be hard to keep going. So especially at a time like this. (laughs) Yeah, some of you know where this is going, I know. Especially at a time like this, we don't just need... (laughs) I'm so excited. Shut up. We don't just need an outlook. What do we need? An outlook. An outlook. Thank you. (laughs) Hebrews 2 verse 8 says this. (laughs) Yet at present, come on, behave. Yet at present, we do not see all things subject to him. That's the outlook, right? That's what we see around us. But what do we see? We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. We need to see that. We need to have that uplook. We need to hold on to that truth. That whatever it looks like, Jesus is in control. And, and he is moving forward with, with God's plan of redemption. So look up. Your redemption is near. Listen, I want to tell you this. God's plan of redemption is not on hold because of the coronavirus. Heaven 
is not in lockdown. Amen? amen. Come on, let's have an amen from all you people at home. Amen. I didn't hear that. God is making all things new, and it begins with us, but it will end in a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. When death and sickness and mourning are gone, they have no place, and then our redemption will be complete. And you know, this isn't as sometimes we're we're hearing that this is all just pie in the sky when we die. This is the consistent message of Scripture from beginning to end, and it's already started. The new creation began on that first Easter morning when Jesus walked out of that grave. And it will be ushered in fully on the day that he returns. When is this going to happen? That's what the disciples wanted to know. And here's the answer. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. The weird thing is, this hasn't stopped people from confidently predicting that Jesus will return on a certain date. Someone gave me a book many years ago with very detailed calculations proving categorically that Jesus would return in 1997. The amazing thing is that when I checked not so long ago, you can still buy that book on Amazon. (laughs) No one knows. All Jesus tells us is that there won't be a press announcement before it happens. So his message to us is the same as it was to these first disciples. What I say to you, he said to them, I say to everyone, he says to us, watch. Don't be caught napping. Keep your wits about you. See what's going on. What effect is all of this having on these 12 disciples? Well, try to put yourself in their shoes. You know, a couple of A couple of days ago, they had been swept into Jerusalem with Jesus to the rapturous welcome from the crowds. They had just seen him take on the religious opposition and make them look like amateurs. Their expectations are running high. Surely, this was the moment that they've been waiting for, that Jesus is about to be crowned the true king of Israel. But now, he seems to be telling them that they've got it all wrong, that, he, that he's going to be killed, that there's trouble ahead. And, and, and just in case there's any doubt, his parting shot to them at the end of this long period of teaching them is this, as you know, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And by the way, when Jesus uses that title, Son of Man, he's not saying that he's just a man. That's taken from the book of Daniel, and it is a title that is given to Messiah. So when people say that Jesus never claimed to be anything special, that is a load of rubbish. He was very clear that he was the anointed, the Christ, the one that they had been waiting for. Now we know now, looking back, that it all made sense that Jesus had a bigger enemy than Rome to deal with. That's my phone going off. And so <laughs> so maybe someone said, stop now, please. This was how sin and death would, would be defeated and God's rule on earth would be reestablished. But for them, it must have been really hard to get their heads around this. What about what was happening? This wasn't the Messiah that they had been expecting. This wasn't what they had left their homes and their livelihoods for. It must have felt like their world was being turned upside down. Just 
Think for a minute about how we've struggled to, you know, just in this last week or so to get our heads around the rapidly changing circumstances that we find ourselves in, seeing all our plans go down the pan. Just multiply that many times over and we get some idea of how these 12 disciples must have been feeling. Let's have a bit of empathy for them. So, so when, we, when we see them eating together later that day at the house of Simon the leper, that passage we read about, I, I just, I'm not seeing that as a party atmosphere. It's like they're all feeling the pressure. They're all struggling to make sense of things. What, what Jesus has been saying to them, and, and that sets the scene for this final act in the drama involving a devoted woman and a disillusioned, what I believe to be a disillusioned man. So when we see the woman come in with a jar of very expensive perfume, which she then pours over Jesus' head. This was reckoned to be worth about a year's wages, probably the most valuable asset that she had. And this is just like an extravagant expression of her love for Jesus. And the disciples are indignant. They feel, what on earth are they doing? This could have been sold for money and, 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 you know, what we could have done with that for the poor. But Jesus says, no, no, she has done you know, leave her, leave her. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Now this is often described as an extravagant act of worship. And if that's right, then it's entirely fitting that it was that because Jesus is truly God and worthy of our highest devotion. But, but he's also fully human. And he feels what you and I feel. He's, right then, he's facing within a couple of days a horrific death. His friends at this moment are so wrapped up in their own thoughts that they're incapable of offering any support whatsoever and they condemn her action as a waste of money. And you know what? Common sense would agree with them. But there is a world of difference between the economics of common sense and the economics of love. And of all the people around him, only this woman seems to have any inkling of how he is feeling, of the turmoil in his soul right then. And what she does ministers to him deeply. And, and in fact, it turned out to be the anointing for his burial that there would be no time for when they would take him down from the cross in a couple of days' time and hurriedly lay him in the tomb before nightfall. You know, there are some things that need to be done when the opportunity is there. Sometimes we are prompted to do something or to say something, but then common sense takes over and the moment never returns. She took the opportunity. And isn't it wonderful that she did? Isn't it wonderful that that act of love that Jesus was able to be ministered to in that way before he went through that horrific ordeal that lay before him? But you know what? Let's not be too hard on the disciples or on ourselves. This, this wasn't them at their best and it wasn't them yet at their worst. But hey, they came good in the end as Jesus knew they would apart from one. For Judas, it seems to have been the last straw. And he goes from there and he goes to the chief priests and they ask him what they will give him if he hands Jesus over to them. 30 silver coins, the price 
of a slave. Why? Why, oh why? What drove him to do this? For over three years, this man has traveled with Jesus. He's heard his amazing teaching. He's witnessed his wonderful miracles and healings. He's agreed with Peter that he is the Messiah. You know, it's worth noting that when Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me, they don't all turn around and look at Judas. As far as they were concerned, he was one of the gang. He was a trusted friend. What, what went wrong? And you know, as I've pondered this, I think that rather than some personification of evil, I imagine that Judas was pretty much a normal man. He probably wasn't all bad at the beginning. And what he saw in Jesus appealed to his better instincts. But at the same time, there was a fatal flaw in his character that he kept in the dark. There was a shadow side that he never dealt with. And in the Gospel of John, we're told that Judas had his hand in the till. And maybe that was part of a bigger problem, not uncommon to men. Selfishness. A a kind of what's in it for me approach to life. And as the treasurer and administrator of the group, maybe he had ambitions for about what kind of position he might secure for himself when Jesus came into his kingdom. And now it was abundantly clear to him that that wasn't going to happen, that none of that was going to materialize. And, and I'm guessing that Judas felt, maybe in a funny way, betrayed by Jesus himself. He was disappointed. He was disillusioned that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he was expecting or looking for. And you know what? If he did feel angry and disappointed that Jesus lived up, didn't live up to his expectations, he wouldn't be the last one to feel that way, would he? But please, I urge you, don't allow disappointment with God to harden into disillusionment. Deal with it. Bring it into the open. So we see the effect of the mounting pressure on these few days. We see the effect it's having on the people around Jesus. Next week, we'll see the full weight of that pressure coming on Jesus himself. We don't yet know, if we're honest, what kind of pressure we'll be under in the coming weeks. Let's be honest, none of us are going to respond brilliantly all the time. We're human, but we have an opportunity to learn, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And and I really believe that this unprecedented period that we're entering need not be wasted time. I, I really believe, I'll say it again, that the advance of God's kingdom is not on hold because of coronavirus. And, and the call to widen the gateway is still, I believe, on God's agenda for us. Though maybe it'll happen differently to how we had anticipated. But you know what? Let me just say to finish, these are challenging days that are in front of us. But let's be those who look up, who love God, who love our neighbor, and whose hope is in the God who loves us and who redeems all things. Amen. I think it just would be really good if wherever we are in our homes and if we could just join together in saying the Lord's Prayer. I think that's going to go up on the screen now. Are we there? Okay, let's, let's just, where you are, let's pray this together. Our Father...
our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen.